Marshall Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. So one of you tweeted at us that you took a shot every time that one of us said great power competition on this podcast. So I have very bad news for you. This entire episode is all about China and how America should deal with that. We were very excited to interview Hudson Senior Fellow, retired Air Force Brigadier General, Robert Spaulding about his new book, Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. General Spaulding actually has a really interesting background. He speaks fluent Mandarin. He lived in China. He's really navigated the worlds of business and technology. But most importantly, he actually was a B-2 bomber stealth pilot before he actually started engaging with the China issue. So when he writes about a stealth war, he's really referring to the fact that for decades, people like him across our military trained to fight traditional wars of bullets and bombs. But what he relates in the story and we talk about in the podcast is how China's policy towards this country's ban about economics. It's been about industrial policy. It's been about using our institutions in ways that we traditionally weren't trained to use. And the reason that perspective is so valuable is one of the main themes that we focus on here at The Realignment is the link between foreign and domestic policy, especially when it comes to great power competition. And it, whenever it comes to economic policy, and what's unique about General Spaulding's perspective is that his focus on competition, it extends way beyond the battlefield. It centers on community, and it centers on these communities that have been weakened by failed U.S. economic policies towards China's rise. With all that, let's dive in. All right, General Spaulding, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. So, General, the reason we wanted to have you on, first of all, your background is is fascinating, and you have this new book. So you're a retired U.S. Air Force Brigadier General, served 26 years, B-2 bomber pilot. You completed your career, Senior Director for Strategic Planning to the President of the NSC, your Chief, chief Architect of the National Security Strategy, and a China strategist at the chairman of the JCC. And so, to put it lightly, you know a little bit of what you're talking about, and you, you speak fluent Mandarin. You've, you've written this new book, Stealth War. And one of the themes of the Realignment podcast we talk a lot about here is the reawakening of the American political elite, the threat that China poses, not only just to the United States militarily, but economically and culturally. That's something that you talk a lot about in your book. And particularly, you diagnose a failure of the American elite. What are the origins of that failure? Tell us that story. Well, you know, the origins are really about, um, we see it quite clearly in what happened with the NBA and and really uh, how a general manager tweeted out the support for uh, the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. Uh, and the, and the, essentially the league censured him. And why did the league censure him? Well, because they make billions of dollars mm. uh, in China. And so if you go around and you look at each of the elements that, we, um, that, that make up globalization or the international order, whether it be finance or trade or investment or immigration or media or politics or the Internet or academia, each one of these open institutions in the West are th- thought of as um, essentially um, strengths of openness and strengths of democracy and promote the principles, democratic principles, human rights, civil liberties, rule of law, and that's what keeps the liberal order going, functioning. So as we were looking at this uh, at the Pentagon in 2014 and trying to diagnose why geopolitically the U.S. had less 
power internationally in multilateral institutions to actually promote those principles, the diagnosis became, well, the system had broken down. So, you know, when I was in the fast forward to my time in the White House and people would come in and say, um, you know, well, you guys are destroying the Trump administration, destroying the liberal democratic order. I said, really, can you explain to me what liberal democratic order you're talking about? Because, you know, we diagnosed back in 2014 that the liberal democratic order had ceased to function as a democratic order. Right. It was an order. It wasn't democratic. And it certainly didn't promote democratic principles of human rights. What is promoting, if you look at the current human, UN Human Rights Commission, the opposite. Yes. It was almost like the opposite order. Right. And so, you know, when you diagnose that a this number two economy, the nation that controls the number two economy in the world, fundamentally... Um, doesn't support the the norms of the international order and uses the might of that economy and 1.4 billion and a market of 1.4 billion Chinese to undermine the order, then you have what we have uh, where in two thousand in the summer of 2017 the the EU basically declined for the first time to to at the UN to um, condemn China for human rights violations. So here's a multilateral uh, democratic institution full of a bunch of NATO allies that basically had sided with a totalitarian regime. Now, why did it side with a totalitarian regime? Because of the Port of Piraeus, Greek debt, and the rail lines through Hungary. So Greece and Hungary had basically allied with China in the EU to prevent that boat from going forward. And that's essentially, in a nutshell, what was going on. And it's going on in all the institutions. Yeah. So I think you actually put this, I think, very succinctly. When you basically say, we let the promise of cheap labor, inexpensive goods, and rising stock prices ease us into giving up our independence. So what does that really mean to you, right? So what was that promise? And like, when did that promise sort of start? Well, I mean, you can really uh, point to two major events that I think... Uh, perpetuated, perpetuated that. So the first one is uh, Tiananmen Massacre. So June 4th, 1989, um, the students in Tiananmen Square and a lot of other workers within China are protesting um, the, the totalitarian regime. And, um, and then the regime itself goes uh, into sequestration and starts talking about what's going on. And, and the three things that it comes to the conclusion of uh, are, number one, that the regime itself, the Communist Party, is under attack by elements from within the society in league with the United States. So the same thing that had just happened to um, the Soviet, or was happening to the Soviet Union, the kind of crumbling of the mm -hmm. Soviet Union was now beginning to happen to China. And uh, number two, the um, not only had they gotten economic and financial and science and technology benefit, but they had also gotten some of the principles of democracy. And that's what had uh, led to um, the ability for the United States to create this uh, havoc in league with others in China. And so no longer going forward could they just be about science and technology and capital with the West. They also needed to promote the ideology not only in their own society, but abroad. And the third thing that they learned was that if they ever became separated from the Chinese people, the Communist Party would fail. And so those were the principles that it drove into redesigning its, um, its system so that it could take advantage of all the good from the West without, um, without getting any of the democratic principles. And then the second um, big thing to happen, I think, was WTO. 
Yeah. Because in WTO, in 2001, China is less than a trillion dollars in, in GDP. And um, from 2001 to, to to now, you know, it grows 13 times, over 13 times, and becomes the number two economy in the world. And in the process, in addition to putting its hooks into all of corporate America, Wall Street, academia, and the political system, it also, we take out over 70,000 factories from U.S. industrial base and 3.4 million manufacturing workers. So not only are they getting their hooks into corporate America and, uh, and, and finance, but they're also hollowing out what is the, the engine of our economy that actually allows us to produce the things that defend ourselves. But also, um, because we've lost now 30, over 13 million jobs, because each of those 3.4 million manufacturing jobs come with four support jobs, now we take over 13 million jobs out of the economy that had health benefits and retirement. So now we, now we take out productive capacity, and we levy uh, entitlements on the federal government to pick up. So when, if you look at by 2007, things are still going well. But by 2018, we've uh, retreated on every, almost every kind of social score in the United States in terms of um, the way the, the, the population sees it's how their lives are going. What I like about this story is that it's, you, can, you can see very logically that these steps happen, but what it really is is that it happened rapidly and that American elites and the corporations themselves operate under assumption, you put this out in your book, that this is just normal free market behavior. This is... Regular disruption, comparative advantage. It's a basic rule that we all learned in economics 101. What is the counter to that as somebody who believes very much in, in the opposite view? Well, so, yeah. I mean, f so first of all, it wasn't just uh, economic theory, open markets lead to wealth. It was also social theory, the theory yeah. of modernization, wealth right. leads to democracy. And so what happened then is, you know, not only does a businessman then become, you know, you're, you're, you're free to make as much money as you can by offloading, um, you know, manufacturing capaci capacity to raise your margins. But also, you're now a champion of democracy. So it, it was reinforced in that not only is globalization, and Thomas Friedman did a good job of this, you know, talking about the world is flat, is not only globalization, but you are also doing good for... Um, so I, I think it made it even um, better because you could feel like you, even though you were making these billions of dollars, you were also making the world safe for democracy. And so I think the adoption was very easy. And then you go to these uh, conferences in Davos where the Chinese are saying, yes, globalization is great. And everybody's clapping. And then all the other people that are walking around the, the cities and the communities of our society and in Europe and in Asia and elsewhere where they've seen their productive capacity get taken away. Taiwan is another good example. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the folks that can't afford to go to Davos or will never even uh, approach Davos are thinking this is not going well. And so it happened so rapidly because it actually, the, the story was so good. Right. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, even in our own system where we talk about, there's two main uh, pillars that help accelerate this, and that is um, labor and environment. And so we are proud here in the United States of having a very developed um, labor um, legal system, a system yes. of protections for labor, and also a system of protections for the environment. So um, what we did is we take all of the manufacturing capacity in a, in a system that had 
checks and balances on business to make sure that we are doing it the right way in terms of the share of the wealth going to people that were producing things, but also that we're not poisoning the environment. And we moved it all to a country that exploits the labor and pollutes the environment. So now, you know, and it's even, it, it still is a part of our lexicon. And we say, you know, one a good example is the, the whole idea with fracking. It's better for us to take away our capacity to produce energy in this country and then, and then send our ability to manufacture, because you need energy to manufacture, send our ability over to China to do manufacturing where they have coal-fired plants. So right. we have natural gas, uh, an abundance of natural gas because of fracking, but we want to take that away and send our manufacturing capacity over to do coal-fired uh, plants mm-hmm. to so pollute the environment and then also exploit Chinese labor. So th- there are things that we tell ourselves about promoting democracy, about promoting... Um, um, fair and equitable labor, about promoting fair and equitable trade, and about promoting environmental protections, while at the same time, how we've adopted globalization has actually gone against every one of those yeah. principles. So so two things, right? And, and just to sum up your statements, actually, you say this in the book, the Western dream was basically that you could get rich while promoting democracy. We could, <laughs> like, we, we, you know, like, eat our cake and all that sort of stuff. But to your personal history, so you speak Mandarin, you have had a great interest in China. You'll be also referenced that this book is not anti-Chinese. It's right. about the Chinese Communist Party. So when, what drove your initial interest in China? And then when did you start to sort of consider these questions from the perspective you've always come to in 2019? Yeah, so what drove my interest in China was an opportunity to become an Olmsted scholar uh, in the Air Force. And it's mm-hmm. a program where they send uh, three military officers from each branch overseas to a different country each year and you spend two years in that country learning the 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 people of course they send you to language training beforehand so you go in fluent uh so i got to um, shanghai in 2002 and traveled all over the country uh you know i went to tongji university which is um, a school a university in shanghai um met the people and and really lived lived amongst them for for two years and it was a wonderful experience and um and great people but what you you never you never really get a full understanding of what's going on in the society um, because it's that part of it is hidden from you. you. You if you don't go through the education system, if you don't, you know, for example, understand um, what the People's Armed Police is hmm. uh, and the ministry. What is that? Of, right. Yeah, the ministry it? of State yeah. Security. So these two organs, the People's Armed Police. So the PLA has two, the People's Liberation Army has two components. One is an external facing component that we see, that our military sees, but there's a People's Armed Police that's even um, a larger contingent of the PLA that actually controls uh, the population. And then you have the Ministry of State Security, which is kind of like the combination CIA and FBI that watches the people. And then you have, you know, all the way down to individual neighborhoods, uh, neighborhood watch that are Communist Party members. And so... That part you don't really experience, right? Right. So only a few Westerners experience that, um, particularly if they're getting involved in kind of NGO activities at the local level. But if you're just living there as a businessman, or if you like I was as a student, you know, you go around, you talk to people, you never, you never see the hard edge, and the, and the Chinese Communist Party does a good job of hiding that hard hard edge from you. So when you see a person and they tell you. You know, we could never have democracy here in China because Chinese people can't you, they can't deal with democracy. 
you don't know what goes um, behind that. You don't know the forced indoctrination. You don't know the, um, for instance, if if you're not in the Communist Party, you don't ask questions about the political system. Mm-hmm. You know, that's known to the people because that's what they get reinforced in school every single day. And so when that piece is taken away, you're left with this very, you know, wonderful picture of China without understanding that that dark core. And it wasn't until... I was forced as the the China advisor to the chairman to essentially work with that dark core. Then I began to identify that Mm. we have some serious problems because, you know, once that's exposed to you, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is not the China I experience. You know, by the way, all my interactions with the People's Liberation Army prior to that would be friendly. You know, they're nice people. I hear people. they're very polite. Oh, yeah. they're very <laughs> polite, and they have great parties, and they, you know, they always, <laughs> always want to be your best friend. But it isn't until you actually deal with them on a day-to-day basis and you begin to understand the system, more importantly, you begin to read their documents. Yes. If you read their documents, then you begin to understand um, that there's a more sinister component to it. And so it really was in 2014 when I started to focus on U.S.-China competition at the Pentagon that I began to realize we were not only – um, we were in a bad position. We were probably in the most uh, consequential, existential fight for our freedoms that we'd ever experienced because, quite frankly, it was it was hovering right below, um, you know, the, the eye line for everybody that was supposed to have national security right. as their imprimatur. And just quick follow-up. In 2004, right, so after your um, you, your tour finishes up, what would you? What was your? What were you hopeful about China? Right. So you had that experience. You're interacting with all these people. You see the softer edge of the society. What was your diagnosis then? Well, my diagnosis was this is a great place. You know, all all of my neighbors were working in Fortune 500 companies in the <laughs> Shanghai Special Economic Zone. Right. And so, in the two years um, that I was there, I I could speak fluently, and sometimes I'd be mistaken for Chinese people when people would talk to me on the phone and then meet me in person. So I had good language skills. I understood kind of how to negotiate after the first year of figuring right. it out, and I had some you know culture and unique cultural insights that you know most executives that go over there, most business people that go over there don't spend the time to learn the language. I had learned the language. I, I kind of understood, you know, the cultural intricacies of negotiation and how to negotiate and actually help some friends uh, with, with, some, with some things while I was there, uh, you know, that had businesses. And I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to come back here. And we're going to start a business, and we're going to get rich. You know, Chinese dream. The Western Chinese dream. I'm going to take advantage of the Chinese dream, and I'm like, you become a Wall Street advisor and, and this in is, China. This is what we. This is literally when we what we said. Like yeah. I've got, I had, you know, another at that time, I had another ten years in the Air Force that I had to pay back because of the three years that I'd spent you know, one year in language training and two years in China. But when that was done. I was coming back to Shanghai and, and, and look out world, here I come. That's that's so fascinating because, and this reminds me of, of something that was recently said, Matt Stoller, who was recently on this podcast, said that the, the great dream that we were sold is that we could both make a lot of money and export democracy. And instead, we made, we did make a lot of money, but we've begun importing autocracy right. to our own country. Yeah. And it's fascinating given that own experience that you had because it is, I mean, there's there's a lot of people and it you know, seems quite like a friendly place and a place to go make quite a bit of money. And I, I think the point that I want to make here is it's not that there's bad faith on the part of people who are acting in America 
on behalf of Chinese interests. It's that it's a failure of government policy. Or pursuing policy. ventures. Or right. pursuing ventures. Right. It's not that they're bad people, but this yeah, is a failure. They're not traitors. They're it's definitely not traitors. It's a failure of government policy because the government and the state right. is the one who is supposed to make that choice for right. us. Yeah, and there's, yeah. So the, when did you start thinking about it from that perspective? So, um, so after I figured out, so what happened was in 2014, in the fall of 2014, um, one of these contacts I'd made while I was at living in the Council on Foreign Relations uh, from 2013 to 2014 sent me a, um, a briefing. And the briefing had been made by one of the top five accounting firms in the country. And it basically, in that briefing, it had vignette after vignette after vignette of Chinese or, or of American companies that had been put under duress um, by Chinese companies. And the way that they were put under duress demonstrated to me a sophistication uh, and the only way that I, the only way that I, analogy that I can give is that you know here I'd spent 23 years learning how to break societies and using sophisticated you know air campaigns mm-hmm. and here was a can, here was a campaign that I was looking at lay, uh, right out uh, uh, in front of me where you could do the same exact thing that I could do with a with a V2 bomber mm-hmm. with JDAMs Except it's done with finance and, and information, yeah. and and I I was stunned, quite frankly, because I realized at that point that I did not know. My really, my mind broke because I realized at that point I didn't know how the world worked. The world was working differently than it had been portrayed. You know, the liberal order that we were building was actually not um, not providing a national security for Americans. Because if you think about it. From a military sense, because I, I think in pictures, um, and I and I and one of the pictures that came that came to my mind as I looked at this was you know Dresden after the Eighth Air Force gets done, gets done with it, and then if you look at Detroit after China yep. enters the WTO, I mean it's bombed out neighborhoods, it's 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 destroyed socially, culturally, industrial base, yeah. yes, and. And you realize that you can do the same things that we did in World War II or even in Iraq. You can do that with ones and zeros and dollars and cents in a globalized world. And you, but you can do it in ways that is, it's really imperceptible, yes. it's imperceptible because you just tell the people, you know, you hear this all the time, you know, Americans are lazy, right? They're nonproductive. They're lazy. And Chinese you know, believe this. Chi- yeah. No, they're taught yeah, and American right. elites. They're, yeah. the, they're taught this. Yeah, there's right. a... But yet, nobody. You know, I have a good friend whose whose father was uh, one of the ones that would go around and dismantle these factories that that were sold to China, and you know, it's seared into his mind walking through these places and seeing the workstations and seeing the pictures of their children right. and the you know the mementos of a life. That were left behind, and so these factories close. They shut the door. They put a lock on the door, and these people couldn't even get their personal belongings out. And their 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 everything, their livelihood, not just their livelihood, their life was gone, was ripped from them. And it was if as if the United States had been faced a long term air campaign that slowly destroyed it, but. It, it was imperceptible, and that's where the, the, the whole, you know, the, the, the idea for stealth war comes from because it was, it was a hidden war. It was a war that we couldn't see. In fact, it was a war that we blamed on ourselves yes. because if we would have just been harder working like the Chinese, um, then, then we would have been, then it wouldn't have happened to us. So here, here, there's a lot of debate in this country right now. Is China an existential threat to the United States? Even if the answer is yes, 
what is its actual global ambition? So does it seek to dominate Asia or does it seek to displace the United States on the world stage explicitly? So it, what it, you have to go to what it believes. What, and, when, and when I say what it believes, what the Communist Party believes. Mm-hmm. The Communist Party believes in kind of the, the return of um, the, the China that dominated the world scene for 5,000 years. Right. And, and that China is, um, you know, the best way that they say it, it's like, you know, the, all the sunflowers turning toward the sun. The sunflowers being all the nations of the world turning toward the sun, which is China. That's what they believe. Mm-hmm. They believe that China is a center of the—that's where Zhongguo comes from, middle country. It is a center, and they want to reestablish that. You know, they've had a bad hundred years, the century of humiliation, uh, but they're back, and, and they're going to be back with a vengeance— and they believe this uh, wholeheartedly that, you know, in, you know, almost a su- supremacy, but only if led by the Chinese Communist Party. What's interesting about the whole, that whole uh, theory is that, um, yes, they were one of the primary agrarian economies for 5,000 years and, and were um, somewhat, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for, consistent in terms of their society. Uh, while other, um, you know, kind of hurting hurting economies, you know, that weren't agrarian kind of came and went and had there was a bunch of wars. Um, But uh, since then, the rest of the world has actually developed. So now we have an information economy. So the idea that, you know, just because you were the dominant uh, Mm. nation for 5,000 years that you would be so again actually is a little bit presumptuous if you think about it. But (laughs) going back to your point about, you know, um, recognizing what's going on, and and then and then what is the, you know, what is happening that are in a policy sense that you could see and you could point to and say, well, why are we doing this? Is really stupid, and one of the biggest ones is um, the idea that we would send our retirement funds over to invest in companies yes. that aren't required to maintain, you know, normal audit or transparency requirements, and you know, so. As you started to peel apart, in, in one of the, the books that I read, you know, during this time in 2014, as we were going through this, was uh, Pillsbury's book. And, um, mm-hmm. and, the, and, and what I would always recommend after I read the book was that you read the last chapter and you kind of get the gist, which is the federal government's basically giving everything to the Chinese. Um, but, you know, I think the difference between what I looked at and what he looked at is it was far more focused on the military where I was far more work is focused on the economic and financial. And that's what's actually fascinating here because aside from you being a, a fellow uh, member of the Hudson family, we wanted to talk with you because you directly tie the economic picture to the military picture. Because if we're thinking of the previous Cold War with the Soviet Union, the thing that was totally different was they were not a pure economic competitor in the way that China is. Right? Obviously, the Soviet Union had a massive economy, but they weren't creating next level next generation technologies we weren't competing with them over ai we weren't competing our economies are sort of closed off from each other so is there a sort of difficulty amongst our sort of political financial military elite sector of i think comprehending the tie between these two things like comprehending that if you talk about our china policy you have to actually focus on what's happening in the midwest you actually have to talk about detroit how, how have you sort of experienced that dynamic? Well, yeah, and, and, and if you think about it, the way, we've, um, the way we've taught people that do business today is that you do it primarily through financial wizardry. wizardry. You don't build things anymore, and I think that's, that's – and then 
you have that component of it where business is really about how do I increase, increase my margins every year. It's not about how do I um, make a better product, mm-hmm. right? It's not about how do I um, how do I make a better community yes. where I'm making my product. It's really about how do I increase my margins, and usually that's by offshoring um, the things that I do. But in a national security creating, sense, like complicated debt structures, exactly <laughs> these. Uh, <laughs> These financial instruments yeah. that nobody can figure out yeah. what what you're buying, but hey, it sure, it sure if you can't Which, figure out what uh, you're buying, then that should be make it even more expensive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a system, man. You would have been right. successful I mean, yes. if you'd gone to Shanghai. Yes, you really yes, should have right. that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, but in national security, you know, we there there was another component going on. Whereas we were we were high on our own um, competency mm-hmm. and. Um, and, uh, and the other piece to this is that the Chinese, seeing that, you know, it reinforced in them that that was not the area that they wanted to compete this with. This was Iraq, day. right? So I've, I've heard this before, which is the, the right. tale is is that the Chinese saw the invasion of Iraq and they had to turn everything around. They said, whoa, like, whoa, this is not, we cannot compete on this particular uh, field. We will have to heavily invest in our military, but if we're going to take on the West, it will have to be through different types of instrumentation. Now, how has that clashed with your own experience in the military. This is not the way that things were taught in terms of warfare from this all-out, you know, peer competitor of your peer competitor while you were coming up in the Pentagon. So what was that change like for you? Well, I mean, I think what you have to do is begin to the what the first thing that I looked at was just what's the military balance, mm-hmm. right? And and um what you're faced with when you so you have to put Iraq and Afghanistan away. Because what you're faced with when you're not facing a nuclear power is that we have military superiority in the conventional right. sense. Stealth bombers. Yeah. In right. This case. Yeah. We have JDAMs. We have all this stuff. I mean, yeah. it's just we, we, when you go against, you know, a country like that that, that doesn't, isn't as sophisticated in the way it applies the same tools, by the way, that Amazon does except it delivers bombs, um, then you're, you know, it's a completely different story. And so – what you find in the Pentagon is that everybody wanted to be in that story because when it got to the Chinas and the Russias of the world, then what the Chinese realized and what we should have realized is that war between those types of nations really doesn't make a whole lot of sense because now you're talking about where does escalation exactly. stop. Right. And we have a lot of question, uh, you know, discussion about escalation ladders and, and of course, Hudson Institute is, has a long, here, uh, long history of, of um, nuclear theory. But the bottom line is what the Chinese came to the conclusion of, okay, we're not going to fight. That's that's stupid. Don't jujitsu. We don't we don't we don't want to fight with weapons because that means we could have nuclear weapons. And so they we would want to engage them like the Russians. And I participated in a lot of these talks in terms of strategic stability. And and they would just say, we're not going to talk about it. We're going to have a few nuclear weapons. We're going to make sure that you can't destroy them all so that we can hit you. Uh, that'll make sure that you won't want to hit us, mm-hmm. and that's all we need. They don't have that many relative They don't us, have right? that many, and they don't want that many. They don't care about that many. They just want us to know that if we hit them, they have the capacity to hit for us back. For a second strike. Right, yeah. for a second strike. They want to they have a secured second strike, but they don't want to spend too much money for it, and they don't want to spend too much money in their military because 
you, you know, these things that you're taught in college that, that start to come back up, you know, this whole argument about guns and butter. They yeah. want to spend more on butter than they do on guns. We've become more about guns than we have about butter. And so when you start to look at, okay, here's the military balance. It's going uh, wacko, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But then they're spending more on butter, and we're spending more on guns. And then you go back, and you start thinking historically how this played out. You realize, oh, my gosh, this is the way we just defeated the Soviet Union. And then you're sitting in there in your cubicle in the Over Pentagon. Overmaking them to overspend on military. Yeah, and you're sitting in your cubicle in the Pentagon. You realize, oh, my God. They, <laughs> so it's they've the done. They've basically yeah. reversed on us, and now they're running our play that we played on the Soviet Union, and it's working. We're buying into it. Mm-hmm. Not only do we spend $800 billion on defense, we're saying we need to spend more and yeah. more and more. And so then you have to take a step back, and you're like, okay, what are the elements of uh, a good strategy that that can actually carry us, carry us through. And you have to go back then to Eisenhower. And what Eisenhower said was, in particular, and this is getting directly to the military balance, I think it was 1958, they did a calculation uh, that it would cost $23 billion in 1958 to protect 70% of the population from all those ICBMs that the Soviets were building. And it would cost six times that to protect 90% of the population but the more important number was that for every dollar of offense they added, we had to spend six more dollars on defense. It was a failed strategy economically. We would go broke mm-hmm. before right. the Soviet Union did. And so that's where we got mutually assured destruction. We said, okay, economically this is much more feasible because we can spend money on the offense easier than we can on the defense, and we can just tell the Russians, hey, if you do anything, it's going to be all out. Yeah. And so that became our strategy. So what did we do with that $6 that we saved? We poured it into the Eisenhower National Highway System. We poured it into basic science research. Like the space race, we poured it into STEM education. So all those scientists that were educated, that's where our money went. That was Eisenhower's strategy. We carried that strategy through all the way through the Soviet Union. Eventually, they spent themselves into bankruptcy trying to keep up with our technological prowess because they did the guns over butter. If you look at that and you look at the elements that were hanging over from that, the biggest element that was hanging over from that that was making it difficult for us in a conventional sense because there was a there's three offsets, right? First offset was nuclear offset. Second offset was the kind of the Perry, um, you know, stealth uh, aircraft, right. uh, precision weapons and, and GPS navigation, all of those things. Third offset was the one that, that Deputy Secretary Work tried to institute um, when he came into the Pentagon along with Ash Carter. Well, if you look at the first two, um, uh, the, the first one is done because the, we believe that the, the Soviets have gained economics or, or, or nuclear superiority over us. So we you know, go to build nuclear weapons and we stop doing conventional. The second one is, okay, they've, reached, uh, they've gotten back to nuclear parity, so now we need to do something else. We're going to do technolo- conventional technological superiority. And then when we get to the third, we've basically given up our ability to do that. So Mm -hmm. you take that strategy, you run it again, and you say, what were the elements of that strategy? The elements of that strategy were the Soviet Union was isolated economically from democracies, and we were investing most of our um, excess capacity in terms of our tax base into the country itself, so in manufacturing base, infrastructure, STEM education, research and development. So if you do that, you cut them off and you invest in the country, you deter them with weapons, 
and you and you begin to grow the economic and, and science mm-hmm. and te- technological superiority of your country, then you have a, a way out. More importantly, in the conventional sense, what the third offset should have been, and what I tried to, um, I actually briefed um, uh, McMaster um, when he was at the Army Future Command mm-hmm. um, back in 2015, is let's pull out of the INF Treaty, right, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Because remember I said with for, for every dollar uh, of offense, we were spending $6 of, of defense. Now in the Pacific, for every dollar of defense that China spends, we spend $30 of offense trying to project Bauer in. Yeah. So the idea that the INF Treaty prevented us from actually having an efficient way of pro- providing weaponry, weaponry in the region to actually counter their conventional superiority in, in ballistic missiles that's why, you know, we, we – so we were actually talking about getting rid of the INF Treaty back in 2014 at the Pentagon. How do you, how do you generate that when you have all of these nuclear arms experts yeah. saying we should never, ever come out right. of the INF Treaty? So this is, this is what you're all getting at. This is what the ti- title of the book is, Stealth War, which is that the war that we are now fighting with China is not one of bullets and bombs. It's about ones and zeros, dollars and cents, financialized instruments, economic data, and ultimately it's about the productive capacity of a healthy nation and using that to overpower your enemy. Now, it seems to me that China has understood that mm-hmm. now for almost, what, 25 years since right. the Deng Xiaoping era. Now, why have Western leaders been so slow to grasp this? Well, I think because we, again, we were so drunk on our um, on our superiority and military capability that we thought that meant national security. Yeah. So we equated military capability to national security when in reality, and we, in, in professional military education, we're taught about, you know, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic power, but we're really only focused on military power. And in fact, when I started briefing that, that, that briefing that mm-hmm. I got, um, back in 2014 to all the four stars in, in the military, you know, the, the, the response I got was, holy shit, this is bad. Uh, I'm not sure if we could curse here, are we, Phil? <laughs> but number two... <laughs> number, FCC, all right. <laughs> number two, the, uh, th- that's not my job, yeah. right? I'm, right? I'm I'm supposed to fight. Right. You know, you want to talk about national security, let's talk about, you know, ships and planes and tanks. I don't know how to talk about, you know, ones and zeros and dollars and cents. And I will say one one other thing, and this is kind of where, the, where I focused in, um, in, the, in the latter half of my time at the White House, and that is the strategic... Um, uh, the strategic nature of data in a, in a 21st century economy. And, and the fact that in our system, you know, our system of government has always um, been kind of upheld by our system of economy. And in particular, you had the ability as a man or a woman in the United States to maintain your freedoms um, to the extent that we, that we did um, by maintaining, you know, essentially – ownership of your own property, right? In a physical sense, you own your own property. And the thing that, that in addition to the rule of law, that protects you uh, not just from your neighbor but also from an oppressive government is the Second Amendment. And so as you start to break apart the digital world and you say, okay, the Second Amendment, uh, if this experiment in democracy fails where we've basically distributed power sufficiently so no one person group or party can gain ultimate power then we give the citizen the the ability through the second amendment to to uh, fight an oppressive government 
But when, what you found and what you saw happening as you looked at this economic and financial and digital connection between the Communist Party and other totalitarian regimes in the United States was that in many ways we didn't know who was oppressing us. Mm. And, and, and what I'm talking about here is the case of the Russians influencing um, you know, protests right. uh, after the uh, 2016 um, uh, elections where they use uh, artificial uh, AI bots. They use um, data analysis, big data analysis and social um, social networks to drive protests. So you realize you could use the data, your data against you to influence you in, you in ways that were counter to um, your nation's interests. That in order to get back control of that, you needed to have control of your data. And in order to maintain democracy in a digital world, and the thing that, that requires that or that, that upholds that, that we, we've seen this uh, in the case of um, San Bernardino, is, is encryption. Right. And the ability to have control over your data because only you have uh, control over it. Now, we, in, our, in our own society, we fight over this, this, this conflict between the FBI and DOJ having access to your data, and you saying, hey, no, I'm an American, I'm, I'm, I deserve privacy. And one of the things that, that terrorism kind of in 9-11 drove in our society is this idea that we want to have the government have pervis, per, pervasive knowledge of what's going on in our society. Well, that's a very dangerous yes. path to walk down. That's what China has. And that's where I think in the last half of my time at the White House, I focused on how do we maintain democracy in the digital world? And it's really about encryption. So I think the thing that we'll wrap up with it, because you have a you have a great sort of call to action in the book, which we have three years to reverse course. So sort of, A, why do we have three years? And B, what do we need to do to sort of along the sort of lines you've outlined here? Well, I, I think... I've actually extended that timeline because I think some a lot of the actions that the Trump administration has taken has given us bought us some time. I think uh, putting like Huawei what? on the yeah. NCD list. I think um, starting to do the tariffs. Now this is starting. Uh, I, I like the Petraeus um, analogy that he used in Iraq, throwing sand in the gears of yes. your enemy. I think we've thrown a bunch of sand mm. in the gears of our enemy. So that three-year timeline. Each time we do that, it gets extended out. But all that does is give us the opportunity to then work on our nation. And so now I think we have some time. We need to focus on securing our digital borders as much as we secure our, our air, space, and land and sea um, around the United States and other democracies and invest in our country and protect our institutions, finance, trade, investment, immigration, media, politics, academia, and internet, understand that they're all under attack. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of it... Well, so this, this is where I do have to interject, General. How do you protect institutions which have financial incentives to not be protected? Because... I, and I've, or I've to claim there's not this. a threat. <laughs> yeah, or claim that there's not a threat, which is, you know, as the recent NBA issue has shown, there is a financial intensive for the richest and most famous amongst us to side with our enemies mm. over their own citizens. That is a cultural reversal, which you're not going to be able to reverse in three years. Right, and, and so the reason I wrote, the reason, so first of all, the reason I retired from the Air Force, I didn't, I didn't complete my term as a one-star. I, I asked for an early waiver, and I was granted an early waiver um, to retire as a one-star. Uh, I could have kept going. The reason I got out was to write this book and take this story on the road to the American people because I see, I think the only, and what I write in the book is the what the Chinese Communist Party failed to recognize is the power of the Constitution, the power that each person in this country has a vote, and collectively they can rise up and say, we are not going to take this anymore. And I think they have today unspecified anxiety 
about what's going on in their lives. Why, you know, when I walk around, I see bombed out neighborhoods. They don't know. They they've been told it was them, their fault, right? Because they're too lazy or, or you know unproductive to actually you know provide for themselves. What they what nobody told them is no, it's your elites in league with the Chinese Communist Party that are conspiring to take away your wealth and your democracy, and you need to rise up and 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 ask for redress of your government to fix that. And I think your point about it is government that is responsible for protecting the American people, it, you know, provide for the common defense. And if in the manner in which that is done in a 21st century globalized world is different, then they have the obligation to change and do that. And so it is, thank God we have a constitution. Thank God we have American people that can stand up and say, okay, you guys on the right and the left, you've been, you've been, you've been mucking it up time to fix it. And, and I think that's why we're here today. That's why we have more time than three years, because, you know, I think Trump's an unconventional president. But I think one of the things that you, if you listen to him, he actually listens to what the people are saying. They're saying we've got drugs in our neighborhoods. Yes, because China's pumping fentanyl in. They're saying we don't have jobs. Yes, because we sold them all to China so that we could, you know, have higher margins. He got that. He ran on that message. He got elected on that message. And I think the next, whoever gets elected in 2020 is going to get elected on the very same message. So Only now they'll know it's not just, you know, they're not lazy. They're fine. They're okay. It's we, we, we basically made this pact with the Chinese Communist Party. On that note, General, that. don't I mean. think we can ever end on anything else. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you. joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, please rate us five stars and you can subscribe for future episodes. We'll see you next week.